Hey everyone, thanks for stopping in to listen to my latest sermon. It will begin in just a minute. Before it does, I want to ask a few things of you. First, if you are a regular listener to this podcast and you listen on some type of podcast host, would you subscribe? If you do that, then you'll be notified immediately when a new podcast is uploaded And plus, we have some other audio content in the works, and if you'll subscribe, you'll be one of the first people to know about that. Along those same lines, if you find this podcast and these sermons to be helpful to your life, would you do us a favor and leave us a rating or review on your podcast host? Doing so helps our sermons be heard by more people, and as I've said before, we think that's really important. And finally, if you're a regular listener to this podcast, it would be great if you would consider making a financial donation. You can do that by going to creeksidebiblechurch.org/give. And actually one more thing, if God uses this sermon in any way to impact your life, please let me know about it. You can do so by emailing respond@creekside.me. It would Give me great joy to know that God used my words. Again, thanks for listening. I hope that this sermon will help you to learn and live more fully for Jesus. Today we do begin a new series called New Life. It is what is it about what the resurrection can do to change your life. And uh, here's kind of where it's, it's coming from. It's this, that I look around and I look at the lives of, of us who are Christians, and they don't seem that impacted by the resurrection. Uh, I think there's a reason for it, but the reason doesn't really make sense. But if you, if you grew up in the church and you're my age or older for sure, then you know that, that the language the church used for the longest time when it was uh, talking about making Christians was, was this phrase right here, born again. You ever heard that phrase before? I mean, it's a, it's a Jesus phrase, so it wasn't like it came out of nowhere and it was just some fad or something. Jesus used this term. But for the longest time in the church, it was all about getting people born again. We might say it like that. I'll get you born again. Or are you born again? Things like that. And, and that's great language, except what happened was that the church, for about 50 years of church history, became a terrible parent. It was like we would get people born again and then leave them to struggle and fail and go on life just the same as they were before they were born again, to use the language of the Bible. Uh, think about this now, this idea of being rebirthed, if you will. This is, this is pretty profound language. It, it means like something new takes place something new is begun when we become Christians I mean when Jesus first uses this term a guy named Nicodemus is so confused he doesn't understand that Jesus is speaking spiritually that he looks at Jesus and he's like how can a person go back into the womb if they're already an adult I don't really get what you're saying Uh, sounds like an idiot looking back 2,000 years you know but if you were the first guy then you would sound like an idiot but but it's like wait I I don't get it. How do we start over? And Jesus is not speaking physically, obviously. He's speaking spiritually. And he's saying, look, when you give your life to me, when you become a follower of Jesus, something transpires that's so powerful that it's like you start a brand new 
life. But we as the church, not our church, but the church, have done a terrible job of raising people in this new life. The goal has been to get people born again, and then we just say, well, figure it out. Now, I have an 18-monther. That might be her screaming right now. I'm not sure. Uh, and I have one on the way. And you know that, that we would be bad parents, my wife and I, if we said, well, we did our job. We got them birthed. You know, that was sweet. Good job. And then we said, Azel, uh, here's some books. Uh, learn some stuff, grow up, do well, you know, succeed in life. We expect a college education, but we don't talk to us. We're trying to get other people born again, you know? I mean, born for the first time in that situation. We're trying to have new babies. That would be terrible parenting, but for the longest time in the church, that has been our philosophy. We'll get you born again, we'll hand you some books, and we'll say, go get them. We'll see you in heaven, son. That's no good. And so, if you're like me, I think if you're my age and you're even younger than me, then, then you know one of the frustrations that we have in my generation with the church is that people in the church look like people outside of the church. I think it's one of the reasons that people that are younger than me are simply fed up with church. I mean, they'll give you a lot of reasons if you read some church books about the type of music or, you know, about how we go about an order of service and uh, whether they like the type of leadership that we offer in the church. But I really believe one of the reasons that, that, that the group that we call the millennials, of which I am kind of a part of, uh, that, that we have not embraced church as a whole in the same way is because we look at people in the church and it's like the only difference between you and those outside of the church is that you get up early on Sunday mornings and have to miss football. And that's not that appealing to me, you know? I mean, why would I do that if there's no change? But the Bible demonstrates something so vastly different that we're born again and that in this new life, things are radically different for us both inside and outside, both the stuff that happens in our soul and, both, and the things that happen that everybody can see, these things should be radically altered when we start this new life in Jesus. Now, here's the, I think the really good news about this series of sermons. I think that if you're a Christian, then you want to be different. You want to live a different life. You're not satisfied, even if you've grown a lot and if what I just said doesn't fit you and you look very different than the outside world, you still want to move forward and mature and grow in this relationship with God in this new life that you have. And, and I think this series of sermons is gonna be great for you. And, and if you're a Christian and you haven't grown at all and you don't see any difference, then I, I think you want a new life too. You don't just wanna grow, you're like, man, I thought on that day that I gave my life to Jesus that things would be different and, and, and I would look different and I'd feel different and I'd... I'd be changed, and maybe I was for a day, or maybe you were for a day, but, 
but now I look back, you know, on the last year or two or three or four, and it's like, I don't seem any different than I was before, and I wanted something different. It's one of the reasons that I marched down the aisle and, and gave my life to Christ metaphorically. It's one of the reasons I said that prayer to Jesus and said, Jesus, take away my sins. It's one of the reasons that I did this whole thing is because I didn't like what my life was, and I wanted something new, and, and now here I am, and and nothing's that different. And, and also good news, uh, good news for those people because I think this series of sermons will help. But, but if you're a person who's not a Christian, I think that you've shown up on the, on the perfect Sunday. And, and if you'll stay with us for the next five weeks, I think that it's the perfect six weeks. It's the perfect sermon series. Because what I believe about people who aren't Christians, uh, and, and I have many friends who aren't Christians. I know we get a reputation as being isolated or whatever. But but I know people who are Christians, and here's something that I would, I would guess of all my non-Christian friends, they want Christians to be different. They wanna know that there is hope in this thing called Christianity, but a lot of people who are not Christians are even not Christians because they look at Christians and they're like, your life is no different. I, and I wish it was because what I see happening around me is not that good, what I feel inside of me is not that good, and I want there to be something else, but I talk to my neighbor who professes to be a Christian, and he's just like me. He's not that different. And I think that this is a perfect sermon series for you because, because it's going to be all about what the new life in Jesus can be. Even though it's sometimes not because of the reasons I've already given and a whole bunch of other reasons, even though it's sometimes not, what we'll look at in this series is that this new life can be different and not only different because different is not always better. This new life can be so much better than a life apart from Christ. It can be so much better and that's what we're going to find, I think, in this series of sermons. And in this series, what we're going to do is we're going to look at the book of Romans, which is, my oh my, a, a beautiful section of the Bible uh, that is profound, it's well written, it's complicated and simple all in one. It is, it is a, a work of art as far as writing goes. And it's written by this guy named Paul. And what's cool about Romans and what excited me about doing this series in the first place and preaching on this subject is, is like I said, we barely talk about the resurrection after Easter. Not, not necessarily in our church because we've tried to make this a point for the last couple of years to, to really focus on the resurrection. But in the American church, we spend... 95% of our time talking about how Jesus dies and how that leads to forgiveness and, and how that's good for us and those types of things. And, and maybe, maybe 5% of the time talking about the importance of the resurrection. So we spend this one day each year going, resurrection, it's awesome, it's so important, I mean, it's great. And then we walk away and it's like, yeah, but that death thing is way more important. And in the book of Romans, this this wonderfully written section of the Bible, written by this guy named Paul, he does this thing that, that I think gets overlooked. If you've ever read the book of Romans, you've probably overlooked this, but, but he has these spots where he talks about our new life in Christ, how great it is, how great it can be, the difference that it can make, and then he just connects them 
to the resurrection. He says, you can have this, you can be this, you ought to be this if you've given yourself to Jesus. Why? Because Jesus got out of the grave. Now, we're going we're gonna to start that part of this series next week, but today we're not going to look at, at what Paul says about it because it's, it's so, uh, it would be, we, I'd be amiss to skip over this story about how Paul encountered the resurrection because this is the thing that I know because of what Paul tells us, that when Paul writes about the difference that a resurrection can make, that the resurrection of Jesus can make, he's not speaking some theoretical nonsense. He's actually speaking out of his own life that was radically, radically, radically changed when he encountered Jesus. And so this morning, and you may know this story, but there's gonna just be a couple of details that I I hope will just be like, whoa, that's what I hope from you. Just go, whoa. But you're gonna see in this conversion story of Paul that when he encounters a resurrected Jesus, when he meets Jesus, having died and rose again, he meets Jesus face to face. From that point on in his life, his life is so different. And in Paul's mind, so much better. Ben Wetherington III is one of my favorite authors about the Bible. He writes about books of the Bible. And if you're ever going to find one guy and say, like, what does this section of the Bible mean? Then I would, I don't know that I'd recommend anybody more than Ben Wetherington III. Anybody that has the third on the end of their name, that's awesome, right? You just sound smarter. Uh, but he says this, taking of a new way of life in place of the old. By conversion, we mean the reorientation of the of an individual soul, his deliberate turning from indifference or an earlier piety to another, a turning which implies a consciousness that a great change is involved, that the old was wrong and the new is right. And he says these words about Paul. He says basically about Paul's life, this idea of conversion is not simply like, I was a little bit off on that. I was was kind of, I should be a little bit different. No, this is like, this is a radical radical change from being obsessed and passionate about certain things to being really obsessed and passionate about other things. Another author, C.K. Barrett, says the active persecutor became an even more active preacher and evangelist. So here's what's happening in Paul's life. We're introduced to him in this book called Acts, written by the same guy that, if you were here last week, we looked at a book he wrote in the Bible called Luke, and I said he was a great historian, and it's, it's worth repeating. Luke was an incredible historian. Not only Christians believe that, but uh, just secular historians also would tell you that Luke is one of the greatest historians. Like, Luke wrote a couple thousand years ago when the Bible was written, and, and, and they're still finding things to this very day that they thought Luke was wrong about, and then they'll find like a a coin with an inscription of a Roman governor and they'll be like, oh, Luke was right 2,000 years ago and we thought he was wrong. I mean, this is an incredible historian, one of the greatest historians ever to live. He wrote this book called Luke and then he writes this book called Acts. Luke talks about in his self-titled book that he didn't name, by the way, but his self-titled book, Luke, he writes about the life of Jesus and in the book of Acts, he writes about the story of the church and how it began and, and really the work of the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, in order to get the church started. And in Acts 7, 
57 and, and 58, he begins the story of this guy named Paul. And there it says, Sorry, this comes on the tail end of a story where a guy named Stephen has preached this incredible sermon. He's been converted to Christianity from Judaism. He preaches this incredible sermon. And the Jewish people who have not converted do not like it. In Acts 7, 57 and 58, it says, At this they covered their ears, and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city, and began to stone him. Meanwhile, notice this, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul in Acts 8 1 through 3 which is just the next verses it says and Saul approved of their killing him talking about Stephen on that day a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him check this out but Paul began to destroy the church going from house to house he dragged off both men and women and put them into prison. Now, you have to pay attention to this. This is, I mean, this is so important. Here, here's the introduction to this guy named Saul or Paul. He goes by both names in the Bible. And here's this introduction to Paul. And the first thing we read is while the first Christian martyr was killed, a guy named Stephen, while they threw rocks at him in order to end his life because they didn't like what he had to say about this Jesus character, Paul was there helping out holding people's coats so that they could throw the rocks harder, so that they could kill this man faster. And then the next thing we see is that persecution breaks out all around. And here's this man named Paul. Again, let me just read this again because it's so important. Who began to destroy the church. That's his goal. And he goes from house to house and he doesn't just arrest the men, he arrests the women too. And he throws them in prison because they believe, this is what they believe. You want to know what the early church believed? That Jesus rose from the dead. That was the defining belief, the distinguishing belief between somebody who was a Christian and somebody that had not converted to Christianity. Everybody agreed that Jesus died. Everybody knew that he had been crucified and laid in a tomb. The distinction was this. I believe he got out of the grave. Or I don't believe he got out of the grave. And those who said he didn't get out of the grave, they really wanted to shut up this new group of people that they believed was tearing at their religion, Judaism. And Paul was at the heart and soul of that. One chapter later in Acts 9, 1 and 2, we read this about Saul who becomes Paul. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, just, this is, this is crazy. I mean, this guy hates hates Christians and what Christianity stands for and what these people are doing to his religion so much that not only as a religious leader, which he was, is he following orders. He's actively seeking opportunity to arrest these people so that they might go on trial. Persecution is already broken out in the, in the area in which he lived. I mean, Christians are being persecuted People are hurting Christians. People are arresting Christians. People are trying to end Christianity. And it's not good enough for Paul. So Paul goes to the religious leader at the time, the high priest, and he says, hey, I got an idea. 
I'll travel around the world. I'm gonna travel around and make sure that there's no Christians in other cities. And if there are, if there's people who say that this Jesus character got out of the grave and they profess to be his followers, then I will bring them back to Jerusalem and we will put them on trial. Damascus is 135 miles away from Jerusalem. 135 miles. He's gonna walk or ride on a donkey or whatever. 135 miles because he hates Christians so much and he wants to put a stop to this thing that he sees as a threat to the religion that he subscribes to. I mean, 135, would you do anything you know, for 135 miles away? Are any of your beliefs strong enough or passionate enough that you would travel 135 miles for it? Paul's like, no, no, no. I know that I've, we can't see any Christians around here anymore, but there might be one down in that city called Damascus. So you give me permission, I'll head down to Damascus and I'll make sure that there's no people following Jesus down there. That's some intensity. I mean, that's some fervency. This guy really doesn't like Christians. I mean, he says about himself later, for I am the least of the apostles, this is after his conversion, and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. Says this in another place, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. Paul hated Christians. He wanted to end Christianity and he wanted to end it so much that he was totally and completely okay with killing those who would claim to be followers of Jesus, who would say, I believe Jesus got out of the grave. But something happens. And we read it in verse three, verses three through six. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, who are you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city and you will be told what you must do. In Acts 26, uh, we get an extra detail to this story, which, by the way, is one of the most important stories in the book of Acts. The Acts has uh, 27 chapters in it, and this story is told three times in different ways. Once from Luke's perspective as he tells it to us here as kind of a narrative, and twice by Paul as he stands on trial for the new Christian faith that he will eventually gain. But in Acts 26, and I think this is so just interesting and worth noting, uh, there we get an extra detail, and there Jesus says to him, why are you kicking against the goads? means nothing to us, right? Uh, but a goad was like a metal stick with spikes in it. And so Jesus makes this point to him like, hey, all you're doing is hurting yourself. Paul thinks that he's helping the religion that he's subscribed to. Paul thinks that he's doing a service to the world. And Jesus adds this detail, hey, like, hey, understand that you're not doing anything but hurting yourself. And Paul in this moment seems to believe that Jesus rose from the grave. It could be debated that this is the moment of conversion for Paul. It could be said that this isn't the moment of conversion for Paul. 
That's not the important part for us today. The important part right now is simply to say this. This is the moment where, Jesus, uh, where Paul goes from believing that Jesus was a zealous leader who led people astray and then was crucified at the hands of the Romans to believing that Jesus was somebody different, somebody better, somebody that God must have had favor on, but even more, somebody who had resurrected, somebody who got out of the grave. Acts 9, 7, the men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. And from the three stories, what we gather is that they heard some kind of sound but they don't recognize the voice and they see the light. And that's gotta be a crazy moment for them. Bright light, sound, can't really understand the voice. All of a sudden, Paul goes blind, not really sure what happened. And then in Acts 8 and 9, it says, Saul got up from the ground. But when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and he did not eat or drink anything. Now here's the question that I think is so valuable for us, it's so important for us. What happened in those three days? That's it, that's the whole picture we get. He's blind for three days. We'll see the rest of the story in a minute. What happened in those three days? Here's Paul, the, the great persecutor of Christians, of the church. And we'll see in a moment this incredible change in his life. Radical, he does a 180, he totally turns around. And I think it begs the question, what happens in these moments? And, and I don't think we can actually answer, but I think we can hypothesize. Here's what I believe what, that Paul believed about Jesus. I believe that Paul believed that he was a false teacher, a false prophet, a false God even, whom God cursed and hated. If you were to go back to the Old Testament, a book, uh, a section of the Bible that Paul would have known oh so well, and I guess he would have known the New Testament well too because he wrote most of it, but he knew the Old Testament better than, than we'll ever know probably any book. He was a, a, you know, a religious studies major, to put it in our modern uh, vernacular. He, he was Jewish, and so he would have grown up just studying the Old Testament, memorizing larger portions than we can imagine. And in the Old Testament, it tells us that anyone who dies on a tree, is cursed by God. And I believe that Paul looked at this Jesus character and he said, this is a person that taught bad things, false things. And obviously, he was cursed by God because look at the horrific death that he died. But in these three days, Paul thought, wait. Wait. If he rose again, then he couldn't have been cursed by God. He must have been favored by God. And if he was favored by God, then why did he have to die? And then I think Paul probably thought about books like Isaiah in the Old Testament where it talked about a suffering servant who would come, who would die for people's sins. And he thought, it says in the Old Testament that someone will come and that our transgressions will be laid upon him. By their stripes, we will be healed. And maybe he was there when Jesus was killed and he could picture the stripes on Jesus' back. And maybe he thought about how the Bible said in Isaiah also that, that he was, by his wounds we would be healed. And he thought, wow, 
I've never seen wounds like that. And I think Paul in those three days as he sat there not eating or drinking, considering what he had just seen, a resurrected Savior started to put two and two together and he started to realize, wait a minute, this Jesus character was not cursed. This Jesus character did not say anything that went against the teaching that we have had for thousands of years. In fact, this Jesus character was perfectly in line with all the promises that God has made to us for thousands of years. He must be the Messiah. He must be the Savior. He must be the one that I have longed for. I will give my life to him. Paul spends three days in darkness. And I think at some point in the midst of those three days, he begins to understand the resurrection and he begins to understand even the power of Jesus' death that he died on a cross so that our sins might be forgiven. And Paul begins probably to go, wait a minute, if I have persecuted the church, then I am a wretched sinner. I mean, I'm in need of his mercy and Jesus must have even died for me. He must have hung on that cross, not for the sins of himself if God has this much favor on him, but he must have hung there for my sins sins. He must have hung there for that moment when I held the coats and people stoned that kid named Stephen. He must have hung there for all of the people that I arrested. Paul spent those three days in darkness and somewhere in the midst of them. He gave his life to Jesus. And in verses 10 through 16, it says, In Damascus there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision. Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, Go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. Such a detailed explanation, is it not? Like we get a street name. Uh, Luke was a great historian who was speaking from eyewitness testimony. Uh, You will find, where did I go? Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Ananias is in a tough spot here, right? Like, if God called you in a vision and said, hey, I want you to go hang out with that guy who you know killed a bunch of people. Just spend some time at that house with him. You'd be like, wait a minute. I think I ate the wrong food. This can't be a real vision, you know? Uh, But Ananias asks and God answers and he says these incredible things about what Paul will be and I'll repeat it. This man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show how much he must suffer for my name. These same truths are repeated in Acts 22, Acts 26, Acts 13, Acts 20, and I'm not going to read all of them to you, but what it says here is that God says, hey, because I'm going to give Paul this new life, he's going to have a ton of of responsibility. And what's so cool for us is I think just, and I don't want to go deeply into this, but it it offers us a picture just in the beginning of how different our lives should be. I mean, Paul is chosen. 
We're chosen. If you're a Christian, then you're a chosen one. I mean, the Bible uses that language to refer to all Christians chosen. And not only are you chosen, but you're God's witness to bring light, as it says here, to the world. Your job as a Christian is to testify to the truth of Jesus that you have encountered a resurrected Savior and is to produce light on the earth and is to preach repentance. It's to be a witness based on your conversion experience. But even more, what I want you to see is what, what Ananias is told at the end of this. He says about Paul, and this is just crazy. This is the detail that just, oh, it's so fascinating to me. It says about Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer in my name. Wow. It's quite the thing to be told at the beginning of a conversion experience. What we tell new Christians is not like, hey, glad you chose to accept Jesus. Let me tell you how bad this is going to be for you. (laughs) The picture that we've painted with this born again idea that I mentioned at the beginning, the picture that was painted forever, become a Christian, you'll feel better about everything. Here's the books, good luck. But at the beginning of Paul's conversion, the beginning of Paul's conversion, God says, look, Ananias, you go over there and do what I said. Trust me, this man will suffer greatly because of me and because of this conversion. And you would think that for Paul, the conversion would then become regretful. But what we'll see in just a second is that the opposite of true is true in Acts 9, 17 through 19. It says, then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Paul's eyes and he could see again. He got up, was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. What's crazy about this? And I'm not making this up. You can read the rest of the story later. You can continue past this. This will be where we end today, but you can read past this. I mean, immediately. Paul starts telling people about Christianity in the city of Damascus. Immediately. He like, I don't know. I mean, it doesn't say that it was like that hour, but sure feels like that in the book of Acts. Like Paul's, the scales fall from his eyes. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and he walks outside. He's like, hey, you guy over there, Jesus rose from the grave, you should become a Christian. Paul goes around the city of Damascus doing this. Immediately, the people in Damascus wanna kill him, the Jewish people. So much so that Paul has to be lowered down a wall in a basket to be set free from the people who wanna take his life. So he travels back to Jerusalem, shows up in Jerusalem, and Paul says, hey, hey, Jesus rose again. I'd like to tell you about how to become a Christian. And the Jewish people in Jerusalem immediately wanna kill him. Paul's been a Christian for like one week and two cities have wanted to kill him. That's a conversion experience. And then Paul tells us later in different writings of his, he says, I've I've been stoned. People have thrown rocks at me handful of times. I've been kicked out of numerous cities. People have beat me up. I've been shipwrecked. I've been cold. I've been naked. I've been hungry. I've struggled through this life ever since that day when I gave my life to Jesus. Ever since that day when I knew the resurrection was true, I spent three days in darkness and awoke a brand new man. I have struggled and struggled and struggled. 
And in Philippians 1, 21 through 25, he says this. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in this body, it will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart to be with Christ, which is better by far. But it is more necessary for you that I remain in this body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. Paul says, look, since this conversion, my life is not that good. I want to die, but I have a job to do. And just shortly after that, Paul says, I consider all garbage in comparison to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. Let me just... Paul was a religious leader who got paid a good salary, had comfort, had respect. People liked him. He was moving up the ranks of Judaism. He had tons of respect everywhere he went. People basically would have bowed down to the guy. They would have asked him their hard questions. They would have respected him. He would have lived in a nice home. And then Jesus met him on a road. He spent three days in darkness. He got up and he lost all that comfort. And he says... I consider it all trash. He actually uses the word poop. Uh, like that's the word that, that we would best translate it. I consider it all just a bunch of crap compared to knowing this Jesus character. Compared to the joy and the hope and the forgiveness and the love and the change that he has made in my life, it's all just a garbage. Now here's what I think is just too true for a lot of Christians. They come to a place where they believe, where maybe you believe that Jesus rose from the grave. And you don't spend three days in darkness. You spend three days. I mean, you spend not three days. You spend the rest of your Christian experience living like Paul did in those first three days and you never come out of that room, the scales never fall off of your eyes, you never realize the work and the mission and the greatness of this Christian thing. And so you go years and years and years living in those three days of darkness. And my hope for this series is that that will change. That like Paul, the scales will come off of your eyes. And you won't just believe that Jesus rose from the grave. You won't just figure out, well, I guess the prophecy is a line and it seems like Jesus must have died for my sins and I like all that. But scales will fall off of your eyes, spiritually speaking, and the Holy Spirit will fill you. And you will spend the rest of your life saying, I will be different because this isn't just a little change. This is a brand new life. And in this brand new life, there are struggles and hurts and pains, but I wouldn't trade one minute of it for anything that this world has to offer. I believe that the time is now for you to rise up from your three days of darkness and to start to live the new life that the resurrection of Jesus brings. How sad of a story would this have been? How sad of a story would it have been if Paul encountered the resurrected Jesus, figured it all out, said, I'm a believer. I believe in this Jesus character. And then went right back to Jerusalem and started to live the same. 
And how disappointing is that compared to what you know about the life of Paul? The fact that we're sitting here 2,000 years later talking about him is incredible. But most of you, you live in the three days of darkness. And in those three days of darkness, your life will not be changed. It will not matter. It will not be significant. And you won't trade it for a life of comfort and ease. So my hope for this series is that this series will move you from the three days of darkness to a life that you would never trade for the life you had before Jesus. And my hope for this morning is that you will make a decision, a decision to say, Jesus, too long has my life been like everybody else's. Too long has it been just the same as it was before I encountered you and believed in you. And Jesus, today I make a decision to say, what you want for me, I want. And I hope that all of you will make that decision and then come on this journey with us over the next five weeks now as we look at all that this new life can mean for you. Let me pray for you. Jesus, I pray that, that, that all of us, Lord, would would believe that you rose from the grave and God then would have an understanding of Christianity and would, would give our lives to you. But even more, Lord, this is the hope for this series, that we, God, would not just know that you rose and give our lives to you, but I pray, God, that our lives would be radically different, that we would not live lives of mediocrity, that we would li- not live lives, God, that are exactly the same as they were before we met you. But Lord, like Paul, we would, we would be converted in a way where our old passions become new passions, where that which we fervently applied ourselves would be totally changed to something else and it would be all you, God, and your worship and your glory. And I pray, Jesus, that every one of us would make a decision this morning that we no longer want to live in the three days of darkness, but we want to live the life that you have offered us. And I pray, God, that we would make that decision and as we, God, spend these next five weeks studying what Paul says about the new life that he had and that we can have, I pray that you would radically change us. I ask these things in your holy, wonderful, beautiful name, Jesus. Amen.